Um, Jesus' death on the cross, it, it was an act of destruction as well as an act of creation. The Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross, he destroyed the dividing walls of hostility that we, we put up around one another. He broke down barriers of prejudice in order that he might create a new people. Our, the, where we, I mean, we divide ourselves into tribes, don't we? We erect barriers between us and different people who are perhaps different from us at different stages of life or different races, different classes, different cultures. But Jesus' Jesus's death on the cross was an act of destruction to those barriers in order that he might create a new people. And it's that new people that the Bible says is a, is a temple being built together, each of us living stones. It's that new people that we're going to spend the next 13 weeks looking at together to explore and try to plumb some of the depths of God's vision and God's heart for the church. The church is a people, not a steeple. It's the people, nothing to do with the building. I know, there's a little rhyme for free. Um, sorry, I'll be told off for that later. Uh, the church isn't supposed to be just another social group. It's not supposed to be a, a, another subculture. The church is meant to be the creating of a new humanity. People who are learning to live in a very different way as a result of Jesus' death. And we've produced these booklets to go along with the sermon series. They can be used individually. We're going to be using them in our groups. There are Bible verses, points of application. I'd encourage you to grab one of these, get into it for yourself. And together as a church, it's my prayer that this becomes quite a key series for us. The reason we're doing it, well, there's several reasons we're doing this. Firstly, we're a, a church, a group of people from all different backgrounds. Some of us have been in church for a long time, been in established denominations, are used to doing things in a particular way. Some of us come from other styles of churches. Some of us have never been in church before, and our views and ideas of what church is and should be get shaped by those things. And we want to come back to the Bible and say, what are we supposed to be? But one of the other key reasons as to why I think it's important that we're doing this teaching series on the church is because we are living in a culture. If you like, we're in a post Christian, secular, individualistic society. A lot of big words there. Uh, and that society, post-Christian as it is, is doing what it can to undo a lot of Christian ideas and values. And what that means is for Christians who live in this society is that it becomes more and more normal for us to have our values shaped more by the society that we're in than they are shaped by the Word of God and the teachings of Jesus. That's a problem for us. A lot of Christians feel about the poor and the needy and the marginalized in society in a way that many people in the world would feel about them. But often you meet Christians who have just as much prejudice against people different from them as people in the world would do. Because our values, our ideas are often shaped more by the society we're in, the newspapers we read, than they are shaped by the Bible. That's a problem for us. Especially when it comes to the whole area of church. We're in a society that's increasingly isolated and increasingly consumeristic consumerism consumerism is the order of the day i think therefore i shop is the unwritten rule of our society that we are what we buy and where we shop and what we do and we that approach to shopping is our also our approach to life and to community and to church 
I go to this church for the coffee or the music or the sermon and when it stops meeting my needs, I'll go find another one that does. Or because we're in a society that doesn't help us with creating communities, we're in a society that is breeding isolation, it's, in, it's hyper-individualized society, it means that we don't think, we don't have much of a group mentality anymore. And our smartphones are only making this worse. We now, we choose our interaction with the world and interaction with people based on our technology. I've heard that if you go to a, a teen's house party these days, it's a lot quieter and less raucous than it used to be. Because kids are no longer doing what they used to do at parties. They're now sitting around staring at their phones and occasionally showing each other videos or photos of things that they're looking at on the internet. We are losing the ability to socialize properly. We're certainly losing the ability to stick with one another and form robust relationships that endure through life. 40% of marriages end in divorce, and you might say 80% of people who attend a church one year will go attend another one the year after. As soon as things get difficult, we leave. We, we have an argument with someone in church, we'll go find another church then. That's not God's way. That's not God's vision for the church. I was out um, having curry on Friday night with some dads from the school who aren't Christians, and uh, they asked me what I do for a job. I said, I, I help lead a church, I'm a pastor. And he said, oh, you're a plasterer, I need one of them. <laughs> And I said, no, I'm not a plasterer, I'm a pastor. Do you still need one of them? <laughs> and he's like, no, not so much. But when I said that, I said that that's who I was, what was really interesting is that one of the other guys next to me was a psychotherapist by trade, and it was a fascinating group of people. It sounded like the beginnings of a joke. We had a, a project manager, a, a jazz musician, a pastor, a psychotherapist, and a firefighter. <laughs> that, that, that was the mix of the people, these dads from the school gate. And um, it was interesting, I, when I said what I did, this, this guy didn't know I was, in his words, I didn't know you were religious. I was like, can we still be friends? Um, the guy sat next to him as a therapist, he said, he's all right though. I thought, whoa. <laughs> I mean, if that isn't high praise, I don't know what is. I don't think I'll ever have a nicer thing said about me. <laughs> he's all right though. And we got talking about God and why I'm a Christian, and, and that was fun to be able to talk about that with them. What was interesting is that, again, my therapist friend said, he said, what you're doing is so valuable because you're bringing people together. Even, from, even for a secular-minded atheist, they could see what's needed in our society is people being brought together because we're becoming increasingly isolated from one another. And the final reason why this is so important for us to do is that God... God's vision, God's plan for your life depends on you being part of his people and finding fulfillment in it. It matters for your success and your legacy and your fruit that you learn how to be part of a people. Not just go to a church, but be part of a church. If you watch any action films in particular... Um, the, the lead character, the hero, the protagonist, I don't, I don't care who it is, Indiana Jones or Finn from Star Wars or Maximus from Gladiator, whoever they are, until they learn to find themselves caught up in a story that's not just about them, until they learn to live for something bigger than their lives, they remain ineffective and unfruitful. So, uh, my, my favourite film is the film Gladiator. Um, by the way, I said to Amy, I want to share this idea from, from Gladiator. She said, you always talk about Gladiator. I said, I don't think that's true. Hands up if you think I talk about the film Gladiator quite a lot. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Turns out you were wrong. So, there was only about ten hands. Fine. Um, 
And, this, and um, if you could pray for our marriage afterwards, to publicly shame your wife is not a good idea. Um, but in the film Gladiator, Maximus, the character, he, uh, he becomes a slave of the Roman Empire. His wife and family gets killed, and he makes it his ambition to get revenge on the emperor who's done this to him. And that's what the story's about, until he finds a bigger vision, and then the story becomes about him fighting for the glory of Rome and the, the dream of the Roman Empire. And that's when he becomes a hero. That's when he wins. It's for our lives, you can be about your life, your needs, your, even just your family. But God's invitation to us is, I want you to be passionate about the things I'm passionate about. I want you to see yourself caught up in my story that affects every people, that's, that's global. Last term, we spent, what, 12 weeks looking at who Jesus is. The primary passion of God, the Father's heart, is his son. You might say next to that, it's his people, the people of the Son, Christians who bear Jesus' name. So that, I think, is why it's so important for us to do this. The church is not an optional extra for the Christian life or a second-rate idea. In the Bible, you see Christians who are committed to one another. Uh, they submit to one another. They partner with one another through life. They learn to live alongside one another and love together. A friend of mine who's in leadership at a church was also on the senior leadership at the school in his town. And he was advancing through the school system and his head was trying to convince him to go for more responsibility in school and to even consider becoming a head teacher. And she was selling him the vision of the school. And he stopped her and said, this is a, this is a great vision, but if you're going to try to out-vision the church to win my affection, it's never going to happen. The vision of the church is the most remarkable and most beautiful and most majestic and mind-blowing thing there is. And so he didn't pursue career progression in the school because it would take him away from the bigger vision of the church. Church leader named Bill Hybels is quoted as saying this. He says, There's nothing like the local church when the local church is working right. When the Holy Spirit is in charge, when God's anointing power is on a church, lost people are getting found, found people are growing up, lonely people are getting enfolded, and bored people are finding a purpose and a cause, and the poor are being cared for. When that's all happening, that is the most beautiful activity I've ever witnessed. If you've ever experienced that type of church, you know that it gets a grip on your heart and you think, that's what I want to run after. That's what I want to give my life for. Uh, several years ago, I was in a church in Eastbourne and a, and a family's life blew up when the mum suddenly got diagnosed with a brain tumour. She had four young kids and a marriage that wasn't ideal. Things were difficult for her. They didn't earn lots of money. And her life erupted and I remember sitting and meeting after meeting as I heard about what her life group were doing. Busy people with busy lives were doing everything they could for months to help this family. Taking the kids to school, picking them up from school, making meals, cleaning the house, doing whatever they can to maintain and to help this family in a time of crisis. Now that story is, re I can is replicated across different groups throughout the years I've been involved in church and you'll know those stories of your own. That's God's vision for the church are people from all different backgrounds. My life has been so enriched by being part of the church. I, mean, I, first, I became a Christian and I was bowled over by this relationship with God that I had. I was forgiven of my sin and God has given me a vision and a purpose for my life. I would say almost one of the most significant things separate to that was then realizing and he's called, caught me up in a family, a people as well. 
I've lived with um, adult, uh, adult Christian parents and been around their home and learned how to, or, or learned to see what a Christian family could look like. I mean, I don't come from a Christian home, and so for a long time, <laughs> this is a really like, l- low bar of a dream, but for a long time, I couldn't wait to have kids just so we could say grace around the dinner table. <laughs> There's a lot more exciting things to having you know, kids of your own, but for me, that was, I can't wait. I'm going to have my own kids. And I was watching how this guy would lead his kids and raise their family together. I would often sit around their breakfast table and just watch life and listen and glean wisdom from them. An older guy in the church that I got to know many years ago was an accountant, and he taught me how to budget and look after my money to help me get out of debt and to sort my life out. Someone else challenged me on my commitment phobia, and I would say, I'm married today because someone in the church challenged me on my worldly attitude towards relationships and said, you need to commit to someone. I'm married today. I have the kids I have today. I have the life I have because God has put me in a people. That people is the church, and it's a beautiful idea. And sometimes people say to me, I'm not part of a particular church. I'm part of the global church. I'm part of the worldwide body of Christ. Sometimes people say that for many reasons. And on, on one level, I can understand that. You look at the church, it is not perfect. It's got people like you in it, not just you. <laughs> it's got imperfect people in it. So of course it's not going to be perfect. Of course it's not going to live up to the ideals that we've got. But sadly, that way of thinking about church, I'm part of the the global body of Christ, that again reflects more of a cultural attitude towards church than it does a biblical attitude towards church. Jesus died for a bride, not for just a, a random group of people who kind of put the word Christian on their Facebook status, and that's as far as it goes. Being part of a church is incredibly frustrating at times. You will get let down. You'll get hurt. You'll be disappointed. You'll be overlooked when you thought it was your turn to be not overlooked. It's messy. It's painful. It's discouraging. We'll pray for someone to get, to get better when they're sick and they won't and they'll die and we'll have to work that out together. We learn to grieve together. We'll pray for someone who's sick and they'll get better and we'll rejoice together. We'll celebrate with people when they've had kids and we'll sit alongside people who've been wanting kids for years and they're not able to conceive for whatever reason. We'll walk with people through redundancy and unemployment and we'll celebrate with people when they get jobs. The church is a group of people that are meant to live alongside one another and do life from birth to death and everything in between. And it's not easy, it is messy, but it is God's plan A for the world. It's how God wants to change you. When you become a Christian, you're aware you bring a whole load of baggage to Jesus. Jesus is like, I will forgive you and make you a disciple of mine. And when you become a Christian, you say, great, here I am. And I've got a whole load of baggage with me. Do you mind? Can I move in with all of this junk? Please teach me to walk free. Please teach me to grow. And Jesus says to us, I will help you grow and mature. I will make you more like me. I will fill you with my spirit. And here's how we're going to do it. You see that group of people? They're now your family. You're going to go and learn to live among them and do life with them and grow together. And they're going to be the ones that are going to mature you in the faith. But then, can't we just sing songs? And you like press a magic button. I just get zapped and everything's sorted. No, that's not how it works. We're here to be a people who mature. You want to learn, you ever prayed that prayer, God teach me patience? (laughs) And he says, yeah, yeah, be part of a church and you'll you'll be forced to learn patience. 
Jesus, teach me to love the unlovely. Of course I will be part of a church, and there's plenty there. <laughs> Not you. I mean, I'm talking theoretically. I've heard that there are some churches like that. So how are we going to see done what God wants to do? Well, to start with, we're going to just retell some of our story. Um, the story of King's Church, how, where we came from, what some of the building blocks were in the initial stages, and then look at where we are now. We're going to read something from the Bible, and just this week, I'm just going to talk briefly about what a healthy church needs to look like. But before we do that, we're going to watch a video together of the church, how we got started over in Eastbourne. I love that, that line, when you believe in something enough, you'll, you make sacrifices for it. Um, before, um, let's read together actually. Let's read from the book of Acts. I'm going to read from chapter 2, verse 41 to 47. A vision and picture of the first church. It says this, So those who received the word and were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So what makes a healthy church? This is a, a vision of the, the first church, a vision that has captivated many of our hearts and has become the thing that we're running after. I want to be part of a church like this. What was it that made them so healthy? Well, week one, firstly, a healthy church is a church that prizes and pursues both the Word of God and the Spirit of God together. The truth and the power in equal measure. You ask, what was the impact of this church? What was it like to belong? Well, it says that there's not a needy person among them. Everybody had their needs met. And the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. So you start with a group of 3,000. There you meet one another's needs. And the lost, the broken, the estranged from God are coming to God day by day. A church that's healthy is a church where the people that God loves the most go and reach the people that God cares deeply about in the world, the lost, the broken, the hurting, the needy, the poor, the marginalized. And what created this type of church then? Well, I think we see it here. It was a partnership between the Word and the Spirit. And they held both. They believed passionately in the importance of both. So it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship and prayers and breaking bread. There was a devotion to truth, to learning, to the word of God. Then it says, an awe came upon every soul and many signs, wonders and signs were being done. There was great power from the Spirit as well. And throughout the book of Acts, you see this partnership. You just, it, almost every chapter talks about people who are preaching the truth, seeing the word go forth, and also people who are moving in the Spirit's power and the Holy Spirit doing things together. 
I mean, in the verses that follow from what we read, we have a a lame beggar who's healed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then Peter preaches the word to them. They're imprisoned for their faith. The Holy Spirit breaks them out, and they continue preaching the word boldly. You flick through the pages some more. You've got Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5 who treat truth lightly, and the Holy Spirit kills them. Wonders are done in the church by the Spirit. Re- again, we see people released from prison and they're preaching the word again. We're told that the Holy Spirit is a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. He witnesses to it. But also the apostles and the Christians are witnessing in the words that they're speaking as well. When the church reaches a, a challenging point and there's a there's great need for people to be cared for, they look for people full of the Spirit in order that the apostles can carry on preaching the word. They recognize we need both. We need people full of the Spirit, but we need also to be committed to what God's called us to in preaching the word. The choice is that for any church isn't, shall we be a lively church who's really hungry for the things of the Holy Spirit, or shall we be a really studious church who studies the word? The choice isn't between those two. The choice is, how do we get both? The question is, how do we be both? When I used to lead the, the youth group, there was a guy who, who led a life group, and every week I would ask him, what are you doing in your life group this week? And every week he would reply, we're just going to invite the Holy Spirit and wait and see what he wants to do and pray for people to be filled with the Spirit. I thought, that's great. But every week I'd ask him that question, and there came a point I said, you know you can teach them the truth as well. You haven't just got to wait and invite the Holy Spirit. Or you might be part of a group, or I've known groups again, where you say, what are you doing this week? We're just studying the Word. We're here to study the Bible and learn the truth. It's great. But you might want to consider also just waiting and allowing the Holy Spirit to move in power. They're not against one another. They complement one another. We see it, again, throughout the Bible, this partnership's there. In the creation account, at the beginning, you see the, the Spirit of God hovering over the water, and the Word of God speaks The creative power of God brings life. I could look at several bits in the Old Testament. There's one verse that was quoted in there uh, at the beginning. Zechariah chapter 4 says, The word of the Lord came to me. The word of the Lord came to me, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The word of the Lord came, you're going to need my spirit. Of the word of God, we know that the Bible writers were inspired by the spirit to write what they did. It says in in 1 Timothy, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. The breath, the Spirit of God, inspired the original writers to write what they wrote. But we know that the Holy Spirit as well creates a longing and a hunger in us for the Word of God. Jesus said, when the Helper comes, He will lead you into all truth. He's not working against the truth, the Word of God. We know what sin is because the Word of God tells us what it is. But Jesus said the Holy Spirit is the one who will convict you of sin. When the Holy Spirit speaks, we're told to weigh what we think he said by the book, by the word. That's very important for us, particularly our type of church in our day. So someone might say, I believe because my marriage is really difficult and I've tried so hard to romance my husband and wife and to make them change and they're not changing. And I feel God has said to me, it's okay to pursue another romantic interest. Or someone might say, the Holy Spirit has told me, I feel God has said, it's okay to live with my girlfriend or boyfriend before we get married. 
or the Holy Spirit has said to me, I don't need to serve or submit to any particular church. I can just be a free agent. And the answer to those I believe God has said is, what does the word say? What does, how do we, otherwise are we just driven by our impulses and ideas? Because let's be honest, we hear what God says in part, the Bible says. None of us has a foolproof hotline to discerning and understanding what the Holy Spirit says. So anything that we feel the Holy Spirit is saying to us must be weighed against what's said in this book. And sometimes it's seen as being less spiritual if you just obey the Bible. We have, I think this is a massive issue for our day. Because again, the society we're in, post-Christian, secular, individualistic. The, the individual is autonomous. So you, you and I, we behave like we have the, what we say is law and we can do as we please. We find it very hard to submit to anybody in a real sense. I mean, we'll submit as long as we agree. <laughs> That's not really submitting though, is it? That's just agreeing with someone. But when we disagree, we're all of us, because of our nature, because of our culture, we're more inclined to always trust self. Someone who's not part of this church messaged me a few weeks ago on Facebook. I don't know them very well. And they messaged me and said, can we meet up and have a chat? Because I disagree with my pastor about something and I want to know what you think. I hardly know this guy. And I said, no, <laughs> he's your pastor. You submit, you work it out with him. Oh, but we disagree. I want to talk to you so you can tell me that I'm in the right. What? That's not the church. What are we trying to do together? So we submit what the Holy Spirit says to the Bible. But equally, equally, if we're those who want to love and obey the Bible, then we'll pursue the gifts of the Holy Spirit in our meetings. Won't we? That's what Paul says. Eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy and don't forbid speaking in tongues. You want to be a word person? You pursue the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You behave like they did in Acts. Now, these were people who devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were grounded in the word, and yet you read the descriptions of their prayer meetings. The Holy Spirit said this. Oh, I didn't go there because the Holy Spirit stopped me from going there. I had a dream, and I concluded it must be the Holy Spirit, so I did this. They were led by the Spirit in everything. I want to read a, a story of what I think this looks like in partnership and how the Word of God and the Spirit of God work together. Some of you might, have, might be familiar with the, the biography of a, a Chinese Christian called Brother Yun. The story is called The Heavenly Man. And he tells the story of how he came to get hold of a Bible of his own at a time where it was illegal for Christians to have Bibles. And his dad got healed in response to prayer. The family became a Christian as a result. And, his, and he said, how do I learn about Jesus? His mom said, you need to read the Bible. He said, What's one of them? Where do we get one of them? And they said, well, we think there's a pastor in some village five hours walk from here. We'll go and ask him. So they went and asked this pastor, can we have a Bible? And he said, he, he looked terrified because he'd just come out of prison for 20 years for having a Bible. And so he didn't show them his Bible and said, instead, if you really want a Bible, you need to go home and pray for it and ask God to give you one. And so he did. He went home and prayed and fasted. And this is what this Chinese Christian who's alive at the moment, currently living in Germany, this is what he said. He said, I went home, and every morning and afternoon I ate and drank nothing. Every evening I ate just one small bowl of steamed rice. I cried like a hungry child to his heavenly Father, wanting to be filled with his word. For the next 100 days I prayed for a Bible, until I could bear it no more. 
My parents were sure I was losing my mind. Looking back years later, I would say this whole experience was the most difficult thing I've ever endured. Then suddenly one morning at 4 a.m., after months of begging God to answer my prayers, I received a vision from the Lord while kneeling beside my bed. In the vision, I was walking up a steep hill, trying to push a heavy cart in front of me. I was heading towards a village where I intended to beg for food for my family. I was struggling greatly because in my vision I was hungry and weakened by my constant fasting. The old cart was about to roll back and fall on me. I then saw three men walking down the hill in the opposite direction. A kind old man who had a very long beard was pulling a large cart full of fresh bread. Two other men were walking on each side of the cart. When the old man saw me, he felt great pity and showed me compassion. He asked, are you hungry? I replied, yes, I have nothing to eat. I'm on my way to get food for my family. I wept because my family was extremely poor. Because of my father's sickness, we'd sold everything valuable to buy medicine. We had little to eat, and for many years we'd been forced to beg for food from friends and neighbours. When the old man asked me if I was hungry, I couldn't help but cry. I'd never felt such genuine love and compassion from anyone before. In the vision, the old man took a red bag of bread from his trolley, and I asked his two servants to give it to me. He said, you must eat it immediately. I opened the wrapping and saw that there was a bun of fresh bread inside. When I put the bun in my mouth, it instantly turned into a Bible. Immediately in my vision, I knelt down with my Bible and cried out to the Lord in thanksgiving. Lord, your name is worthy to be praised. You didn't despise my prayer. You allowed me to receive this Bible. I want to serve you the rest of my life. I woke up and I started searching the house for the Bible. The rest of my family was asleep, but the vision had been so real to me that I was convinced there was a Bible. When my parents rushed to my room to see what had happened... They thought I'd gone crazy because of all my fasting and praying. I told them about my vision, but the more I shared, the crazier they thought I was. My mother said, the day hasn't yet dawned and no one has come to our house. The door is firmly locked. My father held me tightly. With tears in his eyes, he cried to God, Dear Lord, have mercy on my son. Please don't let him lose his mind. I'm willing to be sick again if it will prevent my son from losing his mind. Please give my son a Bible. My mother, father and I knelt down and wept together, arm in arm. Suddenly I heard a faint knock at the door. A very gentle voice called my name. I rushed over and asked asked through the locked door, Are you bringing the bread to me? The gentle voice replied, Yes, we have a bread feast to give you. I immediately recognised the voice as the same one I'd heard in the vision. I quickly opened the door and there standing before me were the same two servants I'd seen in the vision. One man held a red bag in his hand. My heart raced as I opened the bag and held in my my hands my very own Bible. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God are in partnership together. The Holy Spirit is passionate about the Word of God. The Word of God is passionate that we would have a relationship with God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And a healthy church is built on that blueprint, one that hungers for and honours the word and spirit in equal measure. Smith Wigglesworth was a, a famous evangelist from the last from 19th century, often called the Apostle of Faith. He saw God do some remarkable things. But in the months before he died, he brought this prophecy to the church in general. And he said this, When the Word and Spirit come together in the church, there will be the biggest move of the Holy Spirit that the nations and indeed the world has ever seen. 
It will mark the beginning of a revival that will eclipse anything that has been witnessed within these shores, even the Wesleyan and Welsh revivals of former years. The outpouring of God's Spirit will flow over from the United Kingdom to mainland Europe and from there will begin a missionary move to the ends of the earth. He said that in 1947. Several decades later, many church streams began in the, in the UK in particular that were trying to prize both the Word and the Spirit. We're part of a church for whom that is our history, our legacy, our passion, and our, still our prayer for the future. God, make us a church that honours and hungers for the Word and the Spirit in equal measure. The vision of the church that we read in Acts 2 is not something you can fake or force. They had all things in common. Therefore, give me your bank details and we'll share it around. It's not communism light. It's not Marxism. It's, a resp- it's what happens when the Holy Spirit moves in the heart of his people. It's a work of grace. And it's something we ought to pray for again. God, do it again in our day. I want us to respond to Jesus together by breaking bread. But as we break bread and drink juice, we're remembering his death. And the book of Ephesians tells us what his death did or aimed to do. Paul says this, Now in Christ, you who are once far off from the people of God, who were separated, who weren't part of the people of God, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He who has made us both one and has broken down in his body the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and that he might also reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Jesus died to create the church, a new humanity, not just another subculture or social group. Let's pray together and then respond by breaking bread.